0: Friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Normally on some Sunday mornings, I am, um, if, I, if I could just kind of speak personally a little bit um, for a moment to start. Normally on, on Sunday mornings, uh, I would say, I'd say most, almost, almost every single Sunday morning, I'm really excited to come and, and to deliver a teaching. But I usually kind of rain that down. I don't want to try and show how excited I am about those. There's other Sunday mornings where I'm not super excited. I mean, just like the devil's sitting on my face when I wake up in the morning and I'm not super, I have to fight through that and pray through that. Um, and to kind of get my energy level up. But oftentimes I'm I'm t- kind of tamping down my energy level because I think sometimes it could be a little overwhelming. Um, but I'm I am not going to do that today. I am very excited about this passage today and um, we're not going to do announcements or anything. I want us to just jump right in. We're in a series in Revelation and we are looking at Revelation chapter one verses one through eight today. We looked at Revelation, just the first three verses of Revelation last week. And today we're going to be looking and at, in particular, verses 4 through 8. But I'm going to be reading, as our scripture reading, verses 1 through 8. And so if you will, follow along, if you, if you haven't turned there already, to Revelation chapter 1. It's the last book of the Bible, last book of the New Testament. And it reads like this The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all of the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the reading of God's word. And let's pray. God, we ask that you, um, as we prayed earlier, that you would, by your spirit, that you would use the, the word that you authored. That you breathed out for us, that you revealed here through Jesus to to John, that you would give us eyes to understand and to see the depth of the truth that is conveyed here. And God, we uh, ask and we do even dare to claim the promise of verse 3. That we were blessed because we have read this. But not merely because we have read it. We are blessed because we have heard it. But we're not blessed just by hearing. That we hear and that we keep what you have written for us. So God illuminate this text for us this morning. We would ask that you would expand our minds. Give us focus and attention in these Next moments, and that you would expand our hearts to receive your word, so that it could bear fruit in our lives. We ask you do this through the Holy Spirit, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we were introduced to the Apocalypse of John. That used to be the old name for the book of Revelation. By the way, the Apocalypse it comes from the the very first. Uh, word in Greek, apokalypsis, and it means the uncovering or the unveiling. We, we looked at this last week uh, of what is Revelation. We saw that Revelation is it's a letter. We see that in verse four, and we're going to get to verse four uh, here as the bulk of our teaching. Uh, but just to recap, Revelation is a letter. It was uh, authored or at least was written down by John, and he's written to a group of churches. Uh, but it is also a revelation. As I just said, the word uh, apocalypsis, uh, apocalypse. It's the pulling of the cover off. It's an unveiling. It's a disclosing uh, what is there. Uh, oftentimes we think of revelation as more like it's, it's uh, uh, closed and bound up and you need some sort of secret access to kind of get to understanding what the meaning is. Here, it's kind of the opposite. This is a revelation. It's a revelation not only of what God is going to do in the future. It's a revelation about what is happening in reality now. And we also saw that it's a prophecy. This is a word spoken from the Lord. And prophecy, as I said uh, last week, includes the foretelling of future events. It includes that, but it's, but it's more uh, helpful to think of it as this is the foretelling of the word of God. And that's what this book is. It's the word of God. And he has made this known to us. Uh, As we saw in uh, last week in verse 1, he has made it known. He has made it known by the use of signs and symbols and strange images. And all of this is drawing on uh, Daniel chapter 2, the God who reveals mysteries. And so we uh, come today to look at the rest of this little section that we were introduced to two here last week and then by the way as a way of reminder there's a chain of communication or chain of revelation that happens here you have god the father revealing this to his son jesus christ who reveals it to his angel and the angel reveals it to john and john reveals it to his servants and uh, that would include us and last week i gave you an assignment i I gave you two assignments really right we were to read revelation all in one sitting Show of hands, not, not to embarrass anybody or anything, but show of hands, you can just keep it low. How many of you are able to read through all of Revelation, even if you didn't do it in one sitting? Right? A couple of you, okay. I encourage you to, to uh, resume wherever you left off and uh, read through the whole thing because uh, it was, like I said, it was a letter. It circulated to churches, and they would sit and read the whole thing out loud. This last week, my wife and I sat down to read uh, Revelation together right at bedtime. And we got as far as chapter one. I can, can, I'll i give you a couple of guesses as to why that is true. Because Janet just kept talking, right? <laughs> she just kept talking. No. Uh, so Janet would ask a question. And then 35 minutes later, we would get back to the next verse. And so... Um, uh, but I considered that good practice for, for today's sermon. Janet is in the nursery. She's already heard this sermon for this, this week. Um, and so, and I don't remember if I said this last week, to, re- to memorize uh, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Uh, and blessed are those who uh, hear it and to keep it, what is written in it. Uh, I'd encourage you to memorize that. And then also, as part of your assignment for next week, if you would memorize verse 8... And we'll get to that uh, in a moment. But the rest of this, uh, all of chapter 1, um, is dealing with the beginning of the vision that John sees. And in chapter 2, you see Jesus addressing the seven churches that we read about in verse 4 of our scripture reading. But the rest of this chapter is kind of the, the vision that John has of Jesus, of when he comes to give him this this vision. And so um, I want us to think of these next five verses in two groups. Uh, And you could follow along in your handout if if you would like to as well. Uh, And I'll give them both to you now. Think of this as the benediction in verses four and the first half of five. Okay, the benediction, which is just kind of a declaration of a blessing, right? A, and it's a benediction. And then the rest of verse five, all the way through verse eight, we want to want you to think of that as a doxology. So a benediction and a doxology. So think of this little introduction here that John is giving to his churches as he's about ready to give and explain this vision, that uh, this revelation that he is receiving from God, from Jesus, from the angel, um, think about this little introduction here as a blessing that John is giving from God to us, and then as a response, the doxology or praise to God from us. So a blessing from God to us is the benediction. The praise to God from us is the doxology. And both of those things teach us a lot About God, they teach us a lot about Jesus. As a matter of, it's packed full of statements here about who Jesus is, and it teaches us a lot about ourselves. So let's go through the benediction part here, verses four and into five. It begins with the writer, as we said before. This is a letter, and so it begins, John. Okay, this is not John the Baptizer. This is John, one of the 12 apostles, 12 disciples, 12 apostles of Jesus. And he's not just one of the 12. He was kind of one of the inner circle along with Peter and James. He was there at some very key moments of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. When Jesus goes up on the mountain and there's the transfiguration, he's transfigured um, there. He uh, and, and Moses and Elijah are there and you have the voice of God speaking down. John is one of the three that's allowed to witness this. He's, the, he's there at the raising of, of Jairus' daughter. He's there in, when Jesus goes away from his disciples in Gethsemane to pray. He brings those three with him. He's the close companion of Jesus. And he's the one that leans up against Jesus as they're sharing the Last Supper. This is who this is. And he's the writer. I want to be clear here. John is not the author. We've just seen that John is the... He's the recipient of this revelation. He's just writing down what he saw. As he says, I'm I'm just giving the testimony of what it is that I have seen. So John is the writer. The readers are, we see in the rest of verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, Asia is modern-day Turkey. If you can kind of see... This is western half of Turkey. That's the Mediterranean Sea that you see around there, the Aegean Aegean Sea. Greece is to your west or to your left there. And John is exiled on this little island out here called Patmos. And he's writing to seven real historical churches. And we're going to get to these uh, later, but uh, here they are now. Ephesus, Smyrna, Theotira, Pergamum. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so, and actually it should be Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. If you wanted to memorize these, there's a little uh, mnemonic device. Think ESPTSPL. ESPTSPL. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, ESP, Thyatira, T, Sardis, S, you you get the idea. Alright. But we're going to get to those uh, later, but they are uh, real historical churches. He taught. He lists them in verse eleven, and he will address each one by name in verse in chapters uh, two and three. And what's interesting is uh, the number seven to the seven churches in Asia. The number seven is really a very important and symbolic number. You'll see often, often in in uh, Revelation. And so, let me just kind of preface all of the series about the number seven by pointing out that this is kind of the symbolic number for completeness or wholeness or perfection. It's drawn primarily from the seven days of creation. And so uh, kind of symbolically, the number seven, it has conveys wholeness or completion or even perfection. And so we are presented with these real churches, and, history. and all of these kind of as a way of seven of them are a way of kind of addressing all of the church, the universal church. And so we could say it kind of this way that we at Redeemer, we should see ourselves in one of these seven churches at least. And so that's who the readers are. So you have John to the seven churches that are in Asia and he gives this greeting, grace and peace. Exactly. What the believers experiencing the difficult circumstances that they were experiencing need. You experiencing difficult circumstances? When you hear the words grace and peace, do you think, oh, I need some grace. I need some peace. It's not by accident that the New Testament writers frequently begin their writings or letters this way. By wishing grace and peace to those who are reading it. And when we learn about some of the difficulties and the things that these churches are struggling with, uh, this, this makes the, the blessing wish of grace and peace much more meaningful. And so we have the benediction then. Now we get to kind of the meat. We've gotten the writers, the readers, the greeting. And now we get to the meat of it here, the benediction or the giving of the blessing. Now what I want you to notice is kind of the the three-pronged approach to this. There's three things. Notice the words from, from, from. You wanted to? You could kind of circle those in verse 4. From, from, from. And so here they are. From him who is and who was and who is to come and to from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and three from Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. So who, who is giving this blessing of grace and peace in the midst of difficult circumstances? It's none other than the triune God Himself. So here you have God the Father um, represented first, from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is some think this is a reference. Uh, to to Jesus, but based on kind of the structure here, this three pronged structure, it's uh, it seems to be pointing to God the Father, and there is kind of an allusion to uh, Exodus chapter three, the story when Moses sees the burning bush and he goes over and the voice says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground, and uh, the Lord God appears to him and gives him instructions that he needs to go and bring. Uh, his people out of Egypt. And then Moses says to God. Well, we know this story right. If I come to the people of Israel. And say to them. The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me what, what's his name. What should I say. And God said to Moses. I am who I am. And he said. Say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. So this. Who is. And added to it who was and who is to come. The I am. There's kind of an allusion uh, to that there. So you have God the Father here. So you have grace and peace as a blessing from God the Father. Then you have grace and peace as a blessing given from, or we could say through, the Holy Spirit. Notice it says here, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now this one's a little harder to see, um, but you can... uh, the, the word seven used here could be understood as kind of what we said before, the symbolic number of wholeness and completeness. So it's like the perfect Holy Spirit or some translators would go the sevenfold spirit. And they see this as a, a, a reference to uh, Zechariah. Where he gets this vision of one lamp and it has seven or one uh, lamp stand and it has seven lamps on it and um, the. The angel comes and says, what do you see? Do you understand what it is that you see? He goes, no, I don't understand. You know. And uh, he goes on to say, um, talking about the rebuilding of the temple, he goes, this is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So maybe there's a connection here. Plus, it fits with this grammatical structure of what's happening in the next part and from Jesus Christ. So you have and from God, the father and from the, the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ. And these three together are very important, because this is from whom our blessing of grace and peace c- come from—from from our triune God. Now, it sounds like a big word. It means three in one, or we would use the word Trinity. I, I, I you have often heard me say this. Uh, maybe if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say. That we're, we are, uh, as Christians, biblical Christians, we would understand we are Trinitarian theists. We believe God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God who eternally exists as three separate and equal persons. So we're, we're not just theists. There's some who would say that all of the theistic religions are basically the same. Christianity, believe in one God. Judaism, believe in one God. Islam believes in one God, and they're all basically the same. How many of you have encountered people who say, Well, aren't you know uh, aren't all religions kind of basically the same, especially those big three? They are not. They're not the same. Do we all worship the same God? No, we do not worship the same God. Christianity is not merely One of the theistic religions. God has revealed himself. There's just one God, but he has revealed himself as three separate and equal persons. As our statement of faith says, we believe in one God, eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. So we do not worship the same God as uh, Islam, right? Right? And what's funny is that those who would say those things that aren't we basically all we worshiping the same God. If you were to ask that to somebody who is knowledgeable or thoughtful about Islam, they would be like, no, 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 we do not. You know, and so um, so the very fact that it begins with uh, that revelation here begins with this benediction of blessing from the Trinity is very, very important. And this becomes really important later in uh, Revelation because um, what we know about Satan is that he's a deceiver and as a liar. And he'll, he'll make an appearance later in Revelation and that Satan often imitates or uh, imitates God. He wants to displace God. It's kind of fundamental to his to his nature. So he's an imposter he's an impersonator. And what we'll see later in Revelation, you'll see a, a, a satanic trinity of sorts. You see one beast out of the sea and another beast out of the, the land and a false prophet and them all working together. And uh, we'll get to more than that. That's a little teaser for you. But let's get back to uh, more about what he's saying about the son here. God, the son, God, the son, Jesus Christ Normally, we'd expect to see this as God the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. But John, I think, at least kind of shifts the order here a little bit to say a little bit more about Jesus. And so he gives three statements about Jesus. Okay, Notice what it says here in verse, um, uh, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler, and the ruler... Of kings on earth. I said this last week, and I'll say it again today, and I'll probably say it often in our series. The book of Revelation is deeply soaked in the Old Testament story, it's dripping with Old Testament references and allusions. And we can come to Revelation and we can understand this basic message of what Revelation would teach us. To give us a word of encouragement that Jesus is king and he wins. Uh, But there's some depth to understanding the Old Testament background for some of these things. For instance, these titles, faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, and ruler of the kings of the earth, come from uh, Psalm 89. So I ask you to turn to Psalm 89. We're going to do some we're going to do some a little plowing here a little little digging psalm 89 has 52 verses we will not read all 52 verses but i will tell you a little about what this song this psalm is about It begins with kind of a praising God for his work of creation and his work of redemption. The work of creating the people Israel. And then notice what it says in beginning in verse 19. It goes from praising God for his creation and the creation of a people to now being a song, a section of this psalm is a song of praise for giving an anointed king, for giving David. David, of course, not being the first king of Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel, the people wanted Saul. He was head and shoulders above the rest, right? He's really tall. But God doesn't look at him. The the outward appearance of a man. He looks at his heart and God called David to replace Saul as king. And so David has a special role in Israel's history as being the anointed king and ruler over Israel. And so it begins uh, in verse 19. You see this kind of praise to David and then all who would come after David as that king. Okay, well, let me back up a little bit here and remind us that in Second Samuel chapter seven, God makes a covenant promise to David. Okay, so hold that thought. Pause. Pause here for a moment as we get into nineteen, the rest of uh, Psalm eighty-nine, because this this is helpful to understand. Uh, God, uh, this is in Second Samuel chapter seven. David wants to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. Which symbolizes the presence of God, right? It had been sitting in a tent. David is living in a house. Finally, after years of being on the run, wandering around, fighting battles, he's now settled and enthroned in Jerusalem. And he wants to build a house. And so he comes to the prophet and the prophet said, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Go ahead and do it. And then when the prophet goes home that night, the Lord says to the prophet, no, no, I have. I want you to pass this word on to David. He is not going to build that house. For me, his son will and his son Solomon does. He goes, but this is what I want to tell you. And so uh, if you would keep turn to second Samuel chapter seven. Sorry for the detour, but this is helpful to understand again. Revelation is dripping and soaked in the Old Testament story. And this is one of the key moments in that story. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant. Okay? So this is the Lord speaking to the prophet Nathan. And he says, this is what you're going to say to David. You're not going to build this house. The Lord says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. I will make... I I love God sometimes says these little funny plays on words. Like David's like, man, that's too bad that the, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. It needs a house. I want to build him a house. He goes, actually, you're not going to do that. He goes, but what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to make you a house. Not an actual structure and a building, but like a house, a people. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up Your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever because of me. Your throne shall be established forever. And Nathan gave these words to Jesus. Second Samuel seven is very important because here you have this promise, this covenant promise of God. That there's going to be a David like person that's going to sit on the throne of his people forever. And it has kind of two senses an immediate sense where you would actually have somebody like Solomon who comes and builds an actual temple and a house. But there's a distant understanding that's supposed to be seen here I will build, I will establish his throne forever. Solomon's throne didn't establish forever. He's talking about the coming one. Psalm 89 is a praise of David and the David-like one that's coming. Okay, notice what it says, verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted him help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from my people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall, uh, shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love will be with him. And in my name shall his horn or power be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And then notice what it says in verse 27. And then notice in particular what it says in verse 37. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand forever. Firm in him, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. See how this is echoing back to second Samuel seven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, the Lord says, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me like the moon. It shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So you see there, John is getting this benediction and he sees in Psalm 89, Jesus as the fulfillment of that Davidic thing. You're you're tracking with me, right? Verse 27. I will make him my firstborn, highest of the kings of the earth. Verse 37, a faithful witness. Now back to what it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 and from jesus christ he is the faithful witness he is the firstborn and john adds he's firstborn of the dead and then this one which is a key theme in all of revelation the ruler of the kings on earth So all three of these then are grounded in Psalm 89. But all three of these things are very important for us as the people of God to understand. Jesus becomes our example then as a faithful witness. Jesus was faithful to the calling that God had sent him to come and do. Jesus lived perfectly a perfect life and gave testimony to who he was in God. To who he was as the son of God. John's readers are going to be called to be faithful witnesses too. And what they're going to be tempted with is to forsake faithfulness to God for the convenience of working of worshiping the local deities of the Roman world. Jesus has a message to them through John. Don't do that. I am the faithful witness, and you're my followers. So the message to us, too, is for us to be faithful witnesses. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. This is pointing to the resurrection of Christ. These churches were under the fear of death. And if they decided that they were going to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ and not give in to the cultic worship of the Roman Empire that was present in their day, and they refused to worship Caesar as God. Remember we said, saw Domitian last week who mandated that he be called uh, Lord and God. If they refused to do that, death was, was on their doorstep. And Jesus gives a word of encouragement. Hey, I was a faithful witness. You should be a faithful witness. And even if it costs you your life. Know this, I'm the firstborn of the dead. Meaning I, I was brought back to life and resurrected. So no matter what happens to you, if you are in me, you will be resurrected too. He's the firstborn of the dead. And he is the last motivation for them. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Domitian is not. Domitian has to answer to Jesus. He probably, probably has already. All the rulers of the earth will have to answer to Jesus. Every ruler that you can think of. Putin has to answer to Jesus. Jesus. Trump has to answer to Jesus. Jesus is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. So this is the blessing that that John gives from God to them. Grace and peace. And it comes from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now he turns to the doxology. And this really kind of makes sense coming off of what we just saw connected to Psalm 89. Remember, Psalm 89 is this enthronement song. It talks about the king, this Messiah. So it makes logical sense for John to now turn to a psalm of praise for Jesus. And notice three things. Likewise, he gave three things, statements about who Jesus was in the previous verse. He gives, uh, or at the beginning of the verse, he gives... Three uh, statements here uh, as well. To him who loves us. So notice the two, right? We had the from, the from, the from. From, from, from. Here now it turns to the direction is upward. From us to God. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us a kingdom and priests to his God. And Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We praise Jesus because he loves us. Stop and think about this for a moment. Jesus loves you. Put yourself in the most difficult experience that you have experienced. Or the most difficult trial that you've had to endure, or go through. Okay? I'm going back in my mind trying to think of, of some as well. And there are lots of thoughts, probably for years, it's for, true for mine, going through my head. And none of them is that sentence. How much radically I could face things if I just remember those three words. Jesus loves you. I heard a, a story uh, about a pastor who went to an, old, uh, an older, much more mature pastor. And he was a church planter. And, and after several months of the church plant, it just didn't work out. Just didn't just didn't go. And this uh, church planters uh, like his whole identity was just crushed. He just was just so broken and discouraged and and he goes and he's pouring out all of this over this table to this older, more mature uh, pastor. And he's hoping that this pastor might give him some word of advice. It, it, what direction should I go? What what strategy tactic should I take? And the pastor just listened and listened and listened and turns to me and he goes, Hey brother. Jesus loves you. Probably the thing that he needed most at that time was to just be reminded. You know what? Your identity is you are loved. You're loved by Jesus. What an overwhelming thought. It should should really take our breath away. You could lose it in reading through this, this doxology the one who loves us. Jesus who perfectly obeys his father loves you who never could. The Jesus who knows your every thought and loves you. The Jesus who set his... uh, affections on you also set his face like a flint to Jerusalem to face that cross how much how much better would all of our days be if we would remind ourselves of this one truth Jesus loves you do you do you feel unloved Do you hunger for love? Do you feel that no one loves you? Do you feel that no one ever will? Do you, perhaps you've even gotten to the point of feeling that you're even unlovely. Friends, Jesus loves you. We praise Jesus because he loves us. To him who loves us. And here's the second one. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. Salvation has three tenses. Past, present, and future. Past in the sense that we are saved from the penalty of our sins. Right? We're forgiven of our sins. It has a future sense in that we're saved eventually from the presence of sin altogether. And sneak peek. Revelation chapter 20 through 22 gives us a good picture of what that world will be like when we are saved from the presence of sin. So we're saved from the penalty of sin in the past. We're saved from the presence of the sin is our future. But in the presence, we're saved from the power of sin. This is behind this, this word. uh, You have been set free. You have been loosed. You have been untied. You have been released set free and liberated from our sins. We praise Jesus because he loves you and we praise Jesus because he has liberated you from the power of sin. So every time you have encountered a temptation and have turned away from it, that's the power of Christ liberating you. When you feel the temptation come on, remind yourself of this truth and we, we all will stumble in various ways no the, the scriptures never tell us that sinlessness will be perfect and accomplishable in this life but we do have the power of sin over us has been broken you have been released from that and for that we praise in our doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then this last one. Number three. And has made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and father. By the way. These are two terms. That God has used. For Israel. Kingdom of priests. Exodus chapter 19. God had just brought his people of Israel. Out of their bondage of slavery. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he's a. a Moses goes up. And he's about ready to come and give the Ten Commandments, which we've all heard of, right, in Exodus chapter 20. But right before that, in Exodus chapter 19, uh, this is the word that the uh, Lord gives through Moses in 19, verses 5 and 6. Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests... And a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. John here is saying, Hey, you churches, this is you. You praise God because this is who He's made you to be a kingdom of priests. He has made us a kingdom priests to His God. And Father, Peter says something very similar to this. 1 Peter chapter 5. You yourselves, he, he's writing to this church, Gentile church. You yourselves know that you're like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. He's, he's clearly saying, by the way, that temple that you see in Jerusalem, you are that temple. You're the spiritual house. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. He says... To be a priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A royal priesthood. You're a kingdom of priests. And then Peter adds this. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Friends, we are priests. We are a kingdom. If you're in Christ, we, right here, are a kingdom of priests to our God. And priests were, uh, were representatives. Remember, priests had that, the, that role in ancient life of representing the people to God and God to the people. That's your role. Did you know that? That's your role. Many of you have probably seen in the news some scandal about the Catholic Church and the hierarchy and all of those things. And won't we'll get into that. But I want you to think through this. In the Catholic Church, there's regular people. And then there's the priesthood. It's one of the, the holy orders. It's one of the sacraments of, of their church. And at the top of that pinnacle is the you know, um, Pontiff Maximus which is Latin for the chief high priest. If you know Hebrews, you should have a little bit of problem with that because the scriptures say we only have one high priest and that's Jesus. But I point that out to say there was an elite group of people who are a priesthood. Here, what it says all throughout the scriptures, you are that priesthood. There's no special class of Christians above other Christians. Everybody who is a Christian is a part of the kingdom of priesthoods. That means that you have a role of representing God to a lost world. You have a role in representing God to a lost world. And we do so, how? Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought him into his marvelous light. You have a calling you are representatives who testify about the gospel of the grace of God. We don't offer sacrifices on their behalf. Our sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise and a pronouncement of the gospel, the good news to people. That's our role. Friends, do you, uh, do you know those around you who need to hear about the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness? And into his marvelous light. I bet you do. I bet you do. So this is the doxology of praise. Jesus loves us. He's liberated us from the power of sin. And not only that. He's made you priests. To his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And John ends with. Think of this as like a trailer of coming attractions. I I knew I wasn't going to get through all of this. Um, Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Again, Revelation's dripping with scripture. You should immediately think Daniel chapter 7. The vision Daniel gets of one like the Son of Man who comes to judge He says, and every eye will see him. This is that anointed one, the son of man that was coming. But then John adds this extra little element to this glorified picture of who Jesus is who's coming to judge. Even those who pierced him. It's another reference to another Old Testament passage. So John is merging together these ideas. Hey, there's a conquering king who is coming to judge and Jesus is him. And Jewish readers of this would have understood, yes, there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and conquer and eliminate the Roman Empire. And John's like, whoa, 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 hold on. That guy was pierced. He's victorious through defeat. He's victorious because of the cross. He's victorious because his hands and his feet were pierced, and even the Old Testament says it. the difference? Judaism in, in Jesus' day, they saw a Messiah who's going to come and conquer. Jesus is coming to conquer, but he had to suffer and die first. And his victory is ours because he was pierced on our behalf. And that is why it says, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Have you wailed on account of Jesus? I remember the very first time, not the first time I heard Jesus. I heard Jesus growing up as a kid. And I've heard about Jesus when I was in like high school age and when we would kind of go to church. We didn't go to church for a period of time after my, my dad passed away from cancer that kind of decimated our family a little bit in the church attendance. But then the Lord kind of rescued me and I went back to church and I heard the word preached to me. From Isaiah about the suffering servant of Jesus. That he was pierced for our transgressions. And I remember I couldn't contain it in. I wailed. Grown man. Tears. Wailing. Because this innocent guy would suffer and die for me. We all will have to wail. Some of us will wail in repentance because of this amazing grace that he's given us. But those who don't will wail for another reason entirely. And John says, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. Friends, I pray that you have been blessed and that you hear and that you this week will keep these, tr- these truths about who Jesus is in this benediction and doxology. May you be blessed in what you have heard. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you Out of, with overwhelming gratitude in our hearts that you had revealed to yourself to us in three persons: Father, Son and spirit. and that all of the glory and praise is, comes to Jesus for who He is. God, may we be faithful witnesses to him as he is the faithful witness. May we be mindful of our resurrection, that we can face death and the worst because we have no fear of that because we will be raised. We will follow our pioneer and savior who was the firstborn from the dead, And we are all servants of him as the ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth. God, I pray that all of us here would know how much that Jesus loves us. How we have been delivered from the power of sin. And God, that I pray that every single one here would know their calling as a priest in his kingdom. God, make all of those truths embed deep into our hearts so that we could give all praise to Jesus in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand? Let's stand for closing. benediction. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our father, And the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.